0: Uh, As I said, my name is Bill Shepard. I'm a partner at Holland and Knight in Palm Beach, and I'm today's moderator. Uh, I am joined by tremendous group of panelists here who come from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, As each of them gets into their own story, I'm sure they'll share a little bit about themselves and their history. I wanna give you a little bit about what brought me to this topic and, and my own background, and then share a little bit about them. So uh, some of you may have known me when I was the statewide prosecutor for Florida. While I held that position, uh, one of the major initiatives that we worked on was an outgrowth of uh, a tremendous problem that we were seeing throughout South Florida, and that was marijuana grow houses. Marijuana grow houses were everywhere. Uh, You could get a house with a signature loan, the bank would fund your house, no money down, Ninety-nine plants would go in, you'd harvest it, and move on to the next, and leave behind a skeleton of a home that uh, the bank ended up having to foreclose on that was worth a, uh, almost nothing compared to uh, what it would have been had you not turned it into this cultivation factory. You ask, why were there 99 plants? Because the DEA at the time uh, had, a, had a sort of de facto rule uh, that if there were less than 100, they wouldn't take the case. So apparently that legal legal memo was shared with everybody in the uh, grow house business and they all had 99 plants. But the problem was too at the time that it was the size of the plant and the weight of the marijuana uh, that determined the punishment. And it was sort of the view of the law enforcement community at the time that if you took over a house, you set up all the hydroponics and the lights and the the schedules and you brought in workers to do it your intent was pretty much the same on day one when they were tiny little buds as compared to right before the harvest when they were six feet tall so Nick Thompson who was a legislator from Sarasota in the Florida House put forward a bill called the marijuana grow house eradication act uh Mark Truville the head of the DEA the chief federal law enforcement authority was there for the uh the uh, kickoff of the bill the attorney general bill McCollum, was uh, a leader on this Uh, lieutenant governor Kotkamp and and governor christ were uh, were supportive of the efforts and, and governor christ ultimately signed it nick thompson said we're not going after the dorm room grower we've got a limit here at five plants if you have less than five plants we're not going after you if you've got more than five plants It's a business not a party and we want to shut you down that was the state's view at the time so if you jump forward a little bit and this is where our panelists can be more helpful than I they will explain to us why today in the town of West Palm Beach where I live in practice across the street from the city of West Palm Beach Police Department between the police department and the coffee shop that most of the police officers go to on their break is a marijuana distribution center. Just on the other side is another marijuana distribution center. And half a block down next to City Hall is another marijuana distribution center. The federal courthouse is on that same street, just up the hill a little bit, all within walking distance, of of three folks who years ago uh, would've been a a prime target for a variety of criminal enforcement actions uh, by state government officials. So the law has changed. Director Roth gave us a powerful, powerful presentation right before this, and it's difficult to follow his, but one of the themes of that was the importance of the rule of law and for people to stand up to the rule of law and when people are challenging it and appeasing those who would ignore the rule of law, that others need to stand up to them. But the debate now in our state and really in our country is what should the law be? What is the process for that? Fortunately, to help us talk about that this morning, we have a number of great panelists and I will give you a a brief introduction of each Uh, The Honorable Dr. Bertha Madras joins us from the Harvard Medical School. She does research in in this area, very significant research on the medical impacts of marijuana, cannabis, uh, on different age cohorts, different people of different conditions, has served not only as a scientist and a researcher in this area, uh, but in the Office of Drug Control Policy and served uh, very significantly in the White House efforts uh, on federal drug control uh, issues uh, during her time in the administration. So I look forward to to hearing from her and having her sort of lead off our conversation and sort of set the table on some of the medical issues uh, that that we face uh, when we're all trying to grapple with this. Um, uh, Dan Russell is at the end of the table. Uh, Dan is from the Dean Mead Law Firm where he is the head of their uh, medical marijuana, cannabis, and hemp practice. He serves uh, as well at, at the appointment of the Agriculture Commissioner, Nikki Freed, who could not be here with us today, but he serves on her advisory panel, uh, works with clients who are interested in exploring opportunities uh, to get into this business, to do it lawfully and to uh, address licensing requirements uh, and certain statutory requirements uh, that he helps them navigate in Tallahassee. Jeff Kottkamp, uh as all of you know, served, uh, served as our Lieutenant Governor uh, and it's great to have him on this panel he serves in Tallahassee also now to assist clients who are facing similar questions and trying to uh, address the, the legal structure so that they can have businesses that comply with state law uh, and in instances where there are opportunities to address unanswered questions in state law to help the legislature resolve those matters. Uh, and I think he can be very helpful to all of us in talking about sort of what is the future of state cannabis law. Uh, And then lastly, Professor uh, Belitho, to my left, who was at AUSA in Tennessee, is now a law professor, uh, but also served as the uh, Chief of Staff to the Deputy Attorney General at the Justice Department. He came in in the administration right after my good friend, Jim Cole, who was the Deputy Attorney General who wrote the Cole Memo which uh, some of you may be aware of, dealt with federal enforcement priorities and whether or not the federal government was gonna do anything about marijuana uh, state laws as they were developing and sort of just taking off uh, uh, speed. So he's gonna provide a great, I think, insight to us, uh, both as a law professor and trying to grapple with some of these supremacy issues. And and how do we explain to, uh, To the ranch hand that Justice Thomas was talking about last night, who sees the stop sign and it says S-T-O-P, stop. How do we explain to to the law students, to the lawyers at our firm, to our own children, how the federal law can say one thing and the state law another? and How do we reconcile that? But before we get into those things, doctor, if you would help us set the table a little bit with some of the medical Uh, research in this area and what you think we as lawyers need to know to have a a well-reasoned discussion on these things.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here in a sea of lawyers. Um, Professor Irving Roth gave a stunning speech just a few moments ago as a Holocaust survivor I once knew an extraordinary man who survived the death camps of Auschwitz and he became a very successful entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. His grandson lived neither in fear nor in want. They were very wealthy. But his grandson recently died of a fentanyl overdose. From the death camps of Auschwitz to deaths by opioid overdose in three generations. We often hear of from shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve not from death to death. Yet the opioid story is not a story of a solitary drug. The strongest predictor of addiction to opioids is the use of marijuana before the age of 18. While death is the ultimate catastrophe, psychoactive drugs with abuse potential do not necessarily precipitate an overdose crisis or death as dramatically but other drugs can be markedly detrimental to the brain, to the body, to behavior, and to others. This is about public health and safety. Florida currently is in phase two of a national campaign which began in the, er- in the late 1970s to first medicalize, normalize, and then legalize marijuana. Today I weave for you a narrative through delusion, doubt, denial, and defraud. It's a harsh and uncharacteristic terminology for someone who is a scientist, and it's distinct from my usual rational objective self. But as I approach my 100th birthday, and that's because I do a little bit of rounding, I am more disinhibited than ever before in speaking outwardly about this problem. Why do I call this delusional? A friend of mine who organized a massive health clinic in the Haight-Ashbury district in the 1960s during the summer of love, he's a physician. When I once asked him, sitting in the back seat of a car as we were going to $60,000 a month Malibu Treatment Centers. I said, what in your experience is the worst drug that you've ever encountered? And he said, I've seen 40,000 patients over the years, over decades, people rushing to San Francisco, to this area because of the drug culture. And he said, it's a very simple and fast answer. Marijuana. I said, what? That's impossible. You've seen heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, deaths, destruction, HIV, AIDS. He said, no, marijuana, because it is the most self-delusional of all drugs. So, Miley Cyrus, Willie Nelson have publicly sworn off the drug. They've given their reasons. But for many years, they were strong advocates of it. Why do I use the terminology doubt? Big Tobacco invented the techniques of scientific disinformation in a campaign to deny the harms of smoking. In a previously secret document, the industry acknowledged that doubt is their product. Doubt of the scientific veracity that has emerged. The marijuana industry and its proponents have cast doubt on every morsel of scientific evidence of the adverse effects of marijuana. We have at least 32,000 manuscripts currently and we're still counting. While reasonable people may take a different point of view on marijuana, proponents, investors, industry lobbyists have enabled a large swath of our population the media, college students, youth, and users, above all, to believe that it is safe, it is harmless, it is beneficial, and it's touted as a treatment and a curative for over 200 medical conditions, and also that it is a victimless activity that every human being has a right to exercise. In a landmark federal court case, when I was the sole expert witness for the Department of Justice in the Eastern District of California, I witnessed for the first time every effort to de- deny the science to categorize marijuana as an ordinary commodity. The court case was to deschedule, the defense wanted to deschedule. <clears throat> and it's sometimes there are witnesses, I was up against seven of them, um, to reschedule the drug. Judge Kimberly Mueller said, this is not the court, this is not the time, and marijuana remained in schedule one. I can, I can easily discuss the reasons. Marijuana is not an ordinary commodity. It contains much more THC now than cannabidiol in the past. Its products are now up to 90% THC, which is the intoxicating, psychoactive, addictive component of marijuana. And why isn't potency important? The higher the potency, the more addiction, the more psychosis, the more impairment, the more accidents. What does the science say? The science says that we have an endocannabinoid system in our brain. It consists of targets, of cannabinoids. The cannabinoids are 2AG and AEA, don't remember that. I won't test you on it, I promise. And two receptors, the CB1 and CB2. This cannabinoid system is crucial for normal brain development and for brain function. Many people suffer suffer the negative effects of marijuana but we don't have full documentation of it because billing codes do not incorporate marijuana as a cause. It's not screened for in the medical community. THC can induce a number of adverse consequences, and my acronym for it is called the Bad APS, B-A-D hyphen A-P-S, just to make it easy to memorize. B stands for brain changes. The hippocampus, which is the heart and soul of learning and memory, shrinks as a result of chronic heavy use of marijuana. This was denied in the court case. The the attorney for the defense said, "Uh, that's all correlation, not causation. And I said, in that case, every person who initiates marijuana use must have something different in their brain because so many studies are supporting that marijuana changes brain structure, brain connectivity. A stands for addiction. There are more people addicted to marijuana in the United States than any other drug except for alcohol, and it's not legal at the federal level like alcohol or tobacco are. If youth start a very early Prior to the age of 17, the uh, substance use disorder, marijuana use disorder, is 5% within the first year, uh, sorry, it's 10% within the first year, and 20% by year four. Those numbers are halved if it's introduced at a later age. D stands for de- Defects in, an Impairment of Cognition, of Intellectual Development and Intellectual Performance. This again was fiercely combated by the industry in that court case. An example of this, recently I spoke to a DC Councilwoman who challenged me on cognitive impairment. I sent her 50 manuscripts, citations for it out of 1,000 that exist in the literature, I haven't heard back yet. A stands for A motivation. Again, there are three longitudinal studies that show that people who have used as a function of age of initiation, as a function of how much they've used, are much more likely as adults to be on welfare, to be unemployed, and to not have a college degree. On this, the industry has cast doubt. P stands for psychosis. Yes, we're back to reefer madness. The industry has cast doubt on an overabundant amount of information on psychosis, calling it correlation and not causation. What are some of the issues? What is psychosis? Psychosis is paranoia. Everybody in this room is, is, is going to uh, poison my water when I leave this room. It is bizarre thoughts. I actually see somebody jumping into a swimming pool in their iPhone. It's disorganized thoughts because the lights in this room are so bright, the carpet is shining back at me, and the circles are beginning to penetrate my, my teeth. It's. Hallucinations. I actually can visualize this candle walking away, or this bottle of water, there's three goldfish swimming in it. It can arise for many reasons, but it can lead to schizophrenia, the ultimate problem. history in India in 1890s, 25 to 45% of people in what they called insane, insane asylums in Bengal, were there because of marijuana use. There's consistency at least nine countries have reported a higher risk for schizophrenia amongst their population if they've used marijuana. The strength of the association is a two to nine-fold higher risk. The timing, use precedes psychosis. Dose response, a recent study by Marta Deforti showed that the more potent the marijuana, the more frequently it's used, the more likely it is for people to have psychosis and convert to schizophrenia. And the conversion rate of people who have these symptoms is now estimated to be between 30 and 47% of people who respond with a symptom of psychosis are likely to convert. Those who show up in the emergency department, psychosis, about 15% of users, and it's getting higher and higher as the dose goes up. The in, and what I've just enumerated are six of seven criteria for causation. S is for safety, damages lungs. Willie Nelson stopped because of it. The use is not victimless. It's not a victimless activity. Illegal states have seen a ramp up in traffic deaths caused by operators testing positive for marijuana. The combination of marijuana and alcohol makes it a lot worse. It's associated with injury to the developing fetus. I won't get into this, but a recent report is very, very alarming because these nine-year-olds whose mothers used while pregnant show symptoms of psychotic-like experiences. They have attentional disorders, and that's why the Surgeon General has said it is unwise for pregnant women to use, even though 70% of dispensaries in Colorado recommended the use of marijuana to pregnant women to alleviate some of their, their symptoms. This is above all a public health and safety industry. Science should inform commercial marijuana, not politicians, not lobbyists, not the industry, not the three billionaires who catalyzed the movement for personal reasons. The people's health has to be prioritized over uh, profit. The burden of proof for potentially harmful actions by industry or government rests on the assurance of safety when there are threats of serious damage. And I can write and and enumerate many analogies to how the opioid industry and the tobacco industry, thank you, um, have used, I'll
2: be- That was hers and not mine. (laughs)
3: Thank you very much for your courtesy.
1: Um, the, what are the lessons learned? I was one of the primary writers of the President's Opioid Commission in 2017. And I excavated the, how we got to this point, and I excavated it for two reasons. One was, how can we reverse engineer the, the mistakes we made as a nation? And number two, how can we prevent this from happening again? We accepted low quality evidence that opioids are safe and non-addictive. We denied addictive potential. We listened only to the advocates, and we marginalized the doomsayers, the people who were against widespread use of opioids. The cigarette industry is also a paradigm of powerful cultural, financial, and political actions of the marijuana industry. It pioneered the development of special interest lobbying and corporate spin, assuring that regulatory statutes would be defeated or serve their own interests. So I'm going to close now with a very simple thought. Why do we revere this three pound gray mass sitting above our necks? We revere it because it is the repository of our humanity. It enables us to create or appreciate poetry, philosophy, iPhones, to conjure up the structure of DNA, to send an explorer to the planet Pluto three billion miles away and miss its target by one mile. It is also the repository of our ability to develop laws so that we can live with each other, repress our baser instincts, and live in health and security. This is not a war on drugs. It is a defense of our brains, the repository of our humanity. Thank you.
0: Doctor, thank you, thank you very much for those, uh, those thoughts and your career and, and work in this area. Uh, Dan, she set a pretty tough table for you. Yeah, I think, um, are we done? Yeah, right. I think you may be done, but uh, I, I'd like to, uh, I'd like, for those of us in the audience who perhaps have not, uh, you know, followed it as closely as you have in the development of the, the constitutional amendments and the, the uh, legal, Structure here in Florida, uh, the efforts that the Florida Bar has tried to give guidance to lawyers, and maybe other bar associations giving guidance to lawyers around the country. Give us, uh, give us your perspective as a lawyer who operates in that area.
2: Uh, sure, thank you so much.
0: Um, Realizing, of me. course, you have a Fifth Amendment right not to talk to us about
2: any of this. No, no, no problem. No
0: pressure.
2: No, no, we're good. We're good. Um, So when Jesse called me a couple of months ago, it actually started when he came and made a presentation in Tallahassee. Um, I saw what he was presenting on and I said, well, if you're ever interested in the future of having um, more of a debate and less of a presentation, I'm available. Uh, I didn't realize I would be going after Dr. Madras when he called for this opportunity. I may have thought again. (laughs) Anyway, thank you very much for having me. This is an amazing group. Um, This is my first time at the Federalist Society. Uh, I was honored last year, actually I was appointed by Commissioner Freed to the Medi- Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee and to the Second Circuit JNC in the same week, which has said a lot about my career. Uh, I've worked in the gambling business, my first job was in-house at a casino, and so here we are. Uh, after Dr. Madras' presentation, I just I want to say I haven't pushed this on the industry. The, the industry, I'm not a pusher. Uh, I'm just a lawyer who sort of fell into this, and and here I am, and I'll I'll answer any questions you guys have, but sort of tell you how this has been for me for the last six years, uh, for me and my family. So I, uh, starting with what what happened last week, uh, just giving sort of a what what happened last week approach in the state of Florida. In the state of Florida, last week we sold about 1,300 pounds of whole flower marijuana. And that doesn't count the tens of millions of milligrams that were dosed in other formats that would be vaporizers, oils, et cetera. So that's that's where we are today. We have more than 200 dispensaries, 22 companies operating in the state of Florida under the state law that's been amended time to time over the last six years. I'll provide all that history during my presentation. So in the United States, currently we have 33 legal medical marijuana states, in addition to the District of Columbia, we have 11 recreational marijuana states. I don't work in any of those states. I know federal law applies, and there's no defense to recreational marijuana. I'll provide some cover for our medical arguments that I'm sure uh, Professor Belito will tell me is all wrong, Uh, (laughs) but it is what it is, I suppose. So in 2014, in the state of Florida, we passed the Compassionate Medical Cannabis Act. And what that did is allowed low THC cannabis for folks who were diagnosed with cancer or seizure disorders. And at that time, it was sort of the birth of the industry in Florida. There was also an import, another important event in 2014, I'll get to later at the federal level. Uh, as you can imagine, when the law passed in 14, there were a lot of businesses interested in being in sort of the genesis of Florida medical marijuana. And the way that the legislature decided to implement was they were gonna break the state up into five regions and they would have one dispensary or one dispensing organization in each region, northwest, northeast, central, southwest, southeast. You can imagine Florida geography breaking up just that way uh, so that all the companies in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County got one. And the Panhandle got one. So be that as it may, uh, there were originally five companies who were awarded a license over the course of litigation and other law changes, we now have 22. And so my introduction to the industry, I was actually sitting in a duck blind in January of 2014 with a lobbyist friend who said, hey, uh, do you guys have a medical marijuana client? And I said, no, but I'd probably like one. He said, well, let me introduce you to these guys. They probably have no chance of winning uh, a license, but they're gonna apply. They, They seem to think they have an idea and a vision. And uh, that company currently is valued at about $2.2 billion. And it was founded by two kids in their late 20s who were tired of investment banking in New York. And that, as they say, was that for them. And so my introduction to them led to my introduction to the industry. Um, My wife works in the industry in communications. And we have seen this help people. And I, I know that after the last presentation, it may be hard to envision a world where uh, a child with Dravet syndrome is helped by a Schedule 1 product, but I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. The industry grew, as always happens in regulated industries over time, it seems, and in 2016 the Florida Legislature passed a law for medical marijuana, which was full-scale, uh, including high THC products, and those were for folks who were sort of at end of life. Uh, They saw to it that if you're on the way out, I suppose that maybe this wasn't such a bad thing anyway. Uh, In 2016 also, we passed amendment two in Florida. Uh, We found one thing that 71% of Floridians agree on. I don't know that we agree on anything else at that level. Uh, What happened with the amendment is uh, one, we put medical marijuana and the right to it in the constitution for Floridians. And the second thing we did is we grew the qualifying conditions. So it's no longer in the state of Florida just for cancer or for end of life or for epilepsy or seizure conditions. It's for a whole host of things, uh, Crohn's disease, and there's also a catch-all because you have to have a catch-all it seems like in, uh, in, in Florida when you, when you draft something for the people to vote on. And so you have all of these lists of conditions, there's about a dozen of them, and then anything else that's sort of like those as well. And so it's our, 2,500 recommending physicians have found. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of folks who fall into that. We currently have 300,000 plus patients in the state of Florida. I think the, the latest update last night was 306,000 patients. We get about 5,000 new patients on the registry every week. There's a current medical crisis on Clematis
0: Street in uh, West Palm Beach with thousands of people with it's these conditions. No doubt
2: about it. And uh, ironically, in the state, in, uh, in Tallahassee, the building that used to be our Department of Corrections home office, next to it used to be a bank and is now a drive-through dispensary. I'm not kidding. Uh, so a little history, um, folks ask, what about hemp? Well, what, what's up with hemp? Well, there's a history to hemp. Uh, I think probably everyone in the room knows that the Constitution was written on hemp paper, which is always a nice talking point with lawyers, but it's, it is what it is. So in, in 2018, when the Farm Bill passed, and included significant growth in the hemp industry. I'm sure um, if anyone works in regulated industries, you've heard all about this. Uh, now each state passes its, uh, its paperwork up to the, to the DEA, which was not all that positive in industry circles. But you can get licenses to grow hemp now. And what is the difference between hemp and marijuana? I'm asked this all the time. I said, well, they're the same. Except that, how much THC is in it? So if you're at zero THC to 0.3 THC, you have a federally legal cannabis sativa L hemp plant. No problem, nothing to worry about. If you are above that, you are complying with state law if you have a medical marijuana uh, <laughs> MMTC license, or you're breaking all of the laws if you do not and you have marijuana. So that's, that's the difference there. Um, what do I have? And this is this is a Jesse Panuccio question that I had to. I just I have to mention. So the Rohrbacher FAR Amendment. I'm sure um, everyone everyone on the panel knows about. What Rohrbacher does? It's it's been in the. Uh, as I mentioned in 2014, Florida introduced medical marijuana. In 2014, uh, the Rohrbacher Amendment was placed on the federal budget. And what it does is prevents the DOJ from spending any money to prosecute those who are legally operating in their state with their legal medical marijuana program. There's no defense to recreational. So if you're in the state of Illinois, buying recreational marijuana Rohrbacher doesn't impact you at all. I think if you're buying at the uh, locations in Clematis, it probably does. Maybe it wouldn't. I'm sure we'll hear about that more in a moment. Um, and let's do this. I know that there's a lot of really uh, interesting things to be said on the panel. I'm sure there's a lot of questions. Um, I'll, I'll leave some time at the end for questions for sure, but thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan.
0: So Jeff, Dan did a, a nice job of uh, explaining sort of uh, where, we, where we are now and a, a little bit of how we got there. What do you see for the future uh, in Tallahassee on, on these issues?
4: Well, I'll give a little bit more backstory too and talk about some of this uh, litigation. But I do wanna thank uh, Jason and everyone here for the opportunity to be here. It is, as Joe kinda mentioned, it's just awesome to be with a large group of people that think like you do. Uh, I mean, one of my most cherished possessions is a, a signed copy of Tempting of America by Judge Bork and you know think about the history of this organization and and how justice scalia and judge borg played such a huge role in that it's just great to be here and i think for for dan and i you know we're not here really to advocate so much as just talk about where we are and um, we didn't have to be where we are by the way Uh, there was a time uh, before the constitutional amendment passed um, the senate president Bill Galvano is one of my closest friends, and uh, the legislature was grappling with this. And I said, well, what if I could uh, bring John Morgan in, and we could just sit down at a table and try to hash this out and avoid an amendment? And he said, great, that would be a wonderful opportunity. So we did that. And uh, John wanted four things. He said, if, if you'll pass a statute that allows smoking, that is a horizontal regulation, that has no caps on licenses and includes pain as a condition, no amendment. Well, that was a no-go for the legislature. So uh, forward goes the movement. I think it was United for Care. I think it was uh, the group that actually uh, John led. So now we're going forward with an amendment. Um, And these guys were smart. They recognized that after the fact there was going to be litigation and so they brought in uh, former Speaker of the House, John Mills, and they drafted uh, what they called an intent document. And it set out as the drafters of the amendment uh, what they, the words of the amendment meant. And it pretty much laid it out. They also, and so then they went to editorial boards across the state to get them to write editorials on the intent document so it would be known to the public when they were voting what they're voting for. So all this is very really interesting to me following our textualism uh, panel pr- prior. So now we have the amendment. Uh, as Dan has mentioned, we have some license holders. Uh, most of it, they were either grandfathered in or they got a license to uh, settle their, their legal dispute with the state. Really nobody has. Uh, a license in Florida that's ever actually filled out an application to prove they can grow successfully medical marijuana. So we have a cap on licenses, and every hundred thousand patients, another four licenses comes available. There's a debate right now of whether we have four available or eight available. Now that we've gone over the three hundred thousand patient mark, but in all of this, as uh, the legislature subsequent to the passage of the amendment passed the statute and that statute uh, says that the regulation has to be vertical instead of uh, horizontal so you have to do from seed to sale you have to grow cultivate process and dispense all under one license and the key there again back to this textualism uh, panel we we just had was the constitutional amendment says you can do any of these activities by using the word or. The statute passed by the legislature subsequent to the amendments passage says and. So it mandates a vertical integration. Well, this led a company by the name of Florigrone to challenge the statute, the enabling or enacting statute passed by the legislature saying it's unconstitutional. They asked Judge Dotson to enter a preliminary injunction, and he did, citing that and or vertical versus horizontal as unconstitutional. The Department of Health then um, appealed, obviously, to the first DCA. The first DCA upheld Judge Dotson and said there's a likelihood of success for the preliminary injunction. And we find that this vertical integration uh, is unconstitutional. The department then asked for en banc. The first DCA 4-4 said no but then reiterated this is unconstitutional. Now the Supreme Court has it. Uh, Jason and the department have filed their initial brief. Floragrown filed their answer brief. Uh, now we're waiting for uh, the reply brief next week. Uh, I filed uh, this tells you uh, how the great work of Jason and how the Florida Supreme Court has changed. Uh, I filed a, a brief for one of the interveners, and one of the first things I put in the brief was a quote, my favorite quote, from all of our favorite Justice Scalia. Um, you wouldn't have done that a few years ago, Jason. But my favorite <laughs> quote, because I think it, it sums up so beautifully and succinctly this idea of how you interpret the Constitution. Scalia said, the Constitution says what it says and doesn't say what it doesn't say. And in this case, the argument is, in the vertical versus horizontal argument, it says or, not and. And uh, that's the, the, the basis of this argument. So where do we go from here, uh, Bill, is we'll, we'll see where this shakes out in the Supreme Court. We should have oral arguments in the next month or two, probably a decision in the early summer. And if they uphold the first, uh, then we go, really, from an application process where you fill out an application and the department picks winners and losers, presumably to a registration process where the department still has criteria that you have to meet. You check the boxes, you pay the fee, you, you get the bond, and, and you're in the business, but you don't have to do all of those activities. It's, uh, I think it would still be possible if the state wanted to allow vertical integration. Uh, But if the Supreme Court were to uphold the lower courts on this, it wouldn't be required.
0: Well, thank you very much for for clearing all that up for us. And uh, I think uh, what you have demonstrated is part of the problem. Your quote, the law says what the law says, I think uh, the Constitution says what the Constitution says leads us right into you, Professor. Uh, my understanding, and I haven't been in law school as recently as you since you work in one, but is that the, uh, the federal law reigns supreme over the state law. And that states have rights and states have certain governing uh, abilities and they have their own constitution. Um, but help us understand and explain to the general public why a state like Florida could do something that would be contrary to the federal law.
3: They can't thank you very much Uh, I'm done Uh, (laughs) it's actually uh, thank you very much for having me it's a pleasure to be here I guess it takes someone from uh, North Carolina to come in and tell 71 percent of Floridians that the law that they voted for is unconstitutional and should be void Um, but uh, I really appreciate the opportunity and I'm very impressed by the size of this conference so let me ask uh, because I'm a law professor I think it's only appropriate that I start with a hypothetical so we have a hypothetical state that decides that uh, it's going to authorize the manufacture, distribution in possession of child pornography. It's going to charge a licensing fee and then it's going to impose a tax on those who produce and manufacture the child pornography. If I asked you what your reaction to that would be, my guess is you would say they can't do that because federal law makes it a crime to manufacture, distribute, and possess child pornography. And you'd be right. The same thing is true for marijuana. The only difference is a policy preference. And if you support the rule of law and you stand for the rule of law, what that means is that you support the law regardless of what your personal policy preference is. And as the law currently stands Where is it legal to manufacture, distribute, possess marijuana in the United States? Nowhere, with the exception of the places that have a federal research grant to study it. And unfortunately, what we know and what we've heard is that we're not operating in a world where the federal law is controlling right now. We see, as other panelists have noted, 33 states have medical marijuana, 11 states have recreational marijuana, and the uh, list of states wanting to jump on the violate federal law bandwagon continues to grow. Don't so, forget DC. Exactly, uh, DC's <laughs> there The ultimate authority well, uh, Also ironic, the other thing I thought was <laughs> I- ironic uh, when I was reading through Florida's medical marijuana law is that uh, as I understand it, medical marijuana treatment centers in Florida are required to have alcohol and drug-free workplace laws, uh, rules. So I thought that was ironic. But I think that uh, if, you, if you support the rule of law and the idea of the rule of law, uh, we shouldn't be comfortable uh, with where we are currently. Uh, as Bill noted, and I teach law students, and you would be amazed at how many law students, when I ask them where is it lawful to manufacture, distribute and use marijuana, they say Colorado in California, they think that it's legal because they've been told that and they've seen it. And when I explain, no, it's not legal, they have a hard time understanding that. They have a hard time understanding how you can have a marijuana dispensary down the street from the federal courthouse where the DEA agents drive by every day. And frankly, I have a hard time uh, understanding it as well. So how did we get here and, and why are we here? Well, uh, it, it takes us looking back in the, in the past and understanding what federal law says first and what the Department of Justice has done historically and then what the Department of Justice did uh, beginning in 2009 that has really led us to the place that we are today, in my opinion. So if, under federal law, as you may know, the Controlled Substances Act lists uh, divides drugs into five schedules based upon their ability to uh, be accepted for medical use, their potential for abuse, and their impact on the person's mental and physical well-being. Schedule one drugs have no accepted medical use, a high potential for abuse, and are strictly prohibited. Uh, marijuana since 1970, when the passage of the Controlled Substance Act occurred, has been in Schedule one. It's never left Schedule One. Uh, there have been many attempts both in court and in Congress uh, to change that, uh, but Congress hasn't done it. So as we sit here today, marijuana is a Schedule One drug, which means as far as Congress has, is concerned, it has no accepted medical use. There is no such thing as medical marijuana uh, under federal law. So for, a, for about 26 years, Uh, States were fairly compliant with that. And then in 1996, California passed something called the Compassionate Use Act. That was really the first attempt at uh, what I think we would call the modern medical marijuana regime. It was a uh, license, a a card regime where you could, you had an immunity defense if you were a holder of a medical marijuana card. Uh, Immediately after that law went into effect, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit in California uh, seeking to enjoin the law based upon the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution, which states, which as you know, states that when uh, federal law and state law conflict, federal law wins. And the District Court Judge in California agreed and enjoined uh, the Compassionate Use Act and found that it was preempted by federal law. That case eventually uh, wound its way to the U.S. Supreme Court on a different issue. You may be, ha- have read it, the Oakland Cannabis Growers' decision which was established that there is no medical necessity exception in the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, But the district court decision in that case resulted in an injunction based upon uh, preemption. So after after that, other states tried from time to time to uh, create medical marijuana regimes. And when they did, the Department of Justice aggressively enforced federal law, whether it be through preemption actions Uh, civil enforcement actions, and criminal prosecutions. And although it didn't uh, eliminate the industry entirely, it made it very risky to engage in medical marijuana, um, and it served as a great deterrent uh, to people, especially opening recreational marijuana up at a state level. So then in 2009, uh, something called the Ogden Memo was written by then Deputy Attorney General David Ogden. The Ogden Memo said, if you are a medical marijuana uh, licensee in a state that has medical marijuana, uh, U.S. Attorneys should not prosecute you as long as you are complying with state law. Uh, in 2011, uh, there was then the, what's known as the first Cole Memo. So in 2011, the Deputy Attorney General was then Jim Cole. Deputy Attorney General Cole puts out a memo that says, ah, uh, the Ogden Memo was not intended to allow industrial level production of medical marijuana, and if you're operating some large industrial type facility, uh, we may prosecute you. Then 2013 was the second coal Memo, and the second coal Memo said, well, about the other coal Memo, uh, what we really mean is, now we're not gonna prosecute you, even if you are an industrial size operator as long as you're complying with state law and not doing some other things like allowing it to be prescribed to children. But in my opinion, more important, on the same date in 2013, August 29th, Attorney General Holder sent a letter to the governor of Washington and the governor of Colorado, which were the two states that that at that time had recreational marijuana. And in that letter, Attorney General Holder said, we will not seek to preempt your laws. That to me was more significant than informing the US attorneys uh, not to seek criminal prosecution because it effectively meant that we were, that the department was going to take no action either in the civil arena or in the criminal arena against these laws. Well, no surprise since then, we've seen a great rise in the number of medical marijuana uh, laws in states and also recreational marijuana laws in states and largely because absent the federal government seeking to preempt the laws, nobody else can. The courts have ruled, generally speaking, that the preemption clause doesn't have a private uh, right of action and that the federal government is the only entity that can seek to preempt a state law. Uh, The Oklahoma and Nebraska tried to do it. They tried to sue Colorado in the US Supreme Court and seek to preempt uh, Colorado's law and the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. They, uh, even though the Constitution says that the Supreme Court has exclusive original jurisdiction over suits among the states, the Supreme Court said, well, we still have discretion as to whether we want to hear that, and we decide not to. They did that over the dissent of Justice Thomas, who said it says exclusive and original jurisdiction, it doesn't say discretionary jurisdiction. Uh, But he lost, and that case was never heard. Oklahoma and Nebraska then went to the uh to the Tenth Circuit and tried to intervene in a lawsuit that had been brought by some sheriffs who were seeking to preempt the law. And the Tenth Circuit ruled the states can't come here because we're not the Supreme Court and the Constitution gives exclusive jurisdiction to the Supreme Court. And it says the sheriffs can't seek preemption because they're essentially private parties. They don't have a right uh, of action under the uh, Supremacy Clause. And although the uh, 10th Circuit allowed a civil RICO lawsuit to go forward, uh, they did not allow any of the preemption lawsuits to go forward. So absent the department coming in and preempting, there's really no way to do it. So in 2018, you may be aware, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions said, uh, I'm gonna return to the rule of law. That's his words in the memo. And he rescinded all of the previous memos that set off a firestorm not only uh, on capitol hill but also within the administration and uh without revealing everything that went up, went on i can tell you that uh, the the president ended up not being happy with that decision because senator gardner from colorado after the Sessions memo, Senator Gardner from Colorado put a hold on all of the administration's nominees in the Senate and said, "No, I will hold every nominee until I get assurance that the department is not gonna prosecute marijuana businesses in Colorado. There was a meeting between the uh, president and uh, Senator Gardner. After the meeting, the president came out in support of uh, not enforcing the uh, federal laws against Colorado. And so I think where we are at a federal standpoint, is pretty much the same place as we were uh, when we had the coal Memo, only we don't have the coal Memo. It's just being applied uh, in an unwritten fashion, but I think that's the way the department's still operating uh, today. So I think that's an explanation of how we got to the place where there's rampant violations of federal law. And the final point I'll make is, it's not only violations of federal law about the distribution, manufacturing, and possession of marijuana. Money laundering, all the money that's generated from these marijuana businesses is all specified unlawful activity proceeds. Every financial transaction conducted with that money violates Section 1957 and 1956 of the United States Code. Uh, We also, every one of those marijuana medical treatment centers is a facility that is being operated for the purpose of drug dealing. Florida's law allows internet advertising. That's in violation of federal law. And anybody who has one of these medical treatment cards and carries a firearm is in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 922G3, which makes it a felony to possess a firearm while using drugs. So, thank you. <laughs>
0: all right well photos have been taken of all of you and you're all on notice of the uh, various federal (laughs) statutes and federal laws that apply to this um dan and jeff i now understand the medical piece i have been reaffirmed in my understanding of federal supremacy over state law Um, how do lawyers operate in this area how do banks operate in this area who have banking customers that are in this business landlords who are renting out these shops on on clematis street who are taking money uh, that clearly is coming from uh, proceeds of the distribution of marijuana Um, if a criminal defense lawyer was taking a, a case involving other criminal conduct they would get certain assurances uh, both from the client that the money comes from some other legitimate source like a home mortgage or a relative who's in a different business Um, but how is it that lawyers bankers real estate professionals can operate in this area uh, without fear of uh, of the US Justice Department coming and knocking on the door and seizing their assets
2: so I can address this from my personal experience as an attorney uh, when this when I introduced my first medical marijuana client to my 400 attorney law firm that was based in 10 states. I got a call from the managing partner because we're an oil and gas firm and this is not what we do. <laughs> and I said, well,
0: and some uh, of your partners were not thinking that their equity should be tied to your originations on one matter. I'm guessing. Yes, sir. Right. Very
2: much so. Uh, so, after a series of meetings uh, with that managing partner who was a very smart, very conservative, very powerful man in New Orleans, uh, and with the assistance of the Florida Bar and its guidance, we as a firm got comfortable with that concept, uh, honestly thankful to the Florida Bar. When 2014 happened and it looked like the bill was going to pass, uh, the, the Bar put out its guidance for ethical operation in the space so that these companies could retain counsel. And it basically laid out a position that if you're a Florida attorney, your responsibility is to not only guide on what was was going to at that time be the state regulations, but also the illegality of federal law. And so I then had the pleasure of changing law firms and doing that again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This time to a Florida-based firm out of Orlando that was uh, a little more receptive, mostly, I believe, because time had passed. And the uh, laws hadn't really changed. Uh, Federal enforcement is defunded. And again, additional guidance from the bar. We now have a subsection of the Florida business law of cannabis attorneys. And so it it's been received. It isn't um, as much as in this room, it's obvious that the federal supremacy clause in the CSA would make us all criminals. We sleep well at night knowing, well, I may go to prison, but I'll still have my bar license.
0: <laughs>
2: all guess, joking aside though. I guess though, we all have different standards. All, all, but... all kidding aside, <coughs> in, the, in the reality, this is a very traditional practice. In the day-to-day operation, I, I look at real estate contracts for leases. I, I look at when we're gonna expand our dispensary. I submit that paperwork to the state of Florida Department of Health to our Surgeon General for review and approval. As much as it sounds odd, i send strain names to the state of florida every week that include bubba kush and all these other things for approval from the state right. and it at some point became normal so uh an m a
0: deal that in another it's, practice might be an m a deal in others in other glasses on you would say that's drug trafficking right but you the florida bar has made you and your managing partner comfortable that drug trafficking with a medical card in violation of the
2: federal law is okay? Here, here's what I would counter that. Yes. There's a question, I'm not. No, I, no, I, and it's not to you. It's, it's, it's not my position. It's sort of the position of the practice. So I researched the five largest law firms in, the, in America. So these folks have between them around 15,000 lawyers and they all have a cannabis practice. And of the five largest in Florida, four have a cannabis practice, yours doesn't. So it's me. And I sleep very well at night. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's, it's okay. It, but it's, it's not me and Jeff, it's me and Jeff and tens of thousands of people doing this. I, right. I guess that's, that's the reality I've asked. Uh, well,
0: well, doctor, let me ask you this. Lots of people sell heroin. Lots of people are involved in prostitution. Um, are numbers really the answer here? <laughs>
1: Might does not make right. (laughs) The number of people who are selling heroin and fentanyl is actually not that large because the number of heroin users is probably maybe about a million plus or minus. Um, In in the case of of marijuana, as I I, I recommended to the White House um, several years ago, The biggest problem that we have is disinformation, deception, and deceit. We have too many people in our country, and especially youth, that believe that it's safe, it's not addictive, it's harmless, it's their civil right to use. And without proper education of what the science says, people are going to continue to Advocate, promote, and continue to use the most. Uh, you know, a little while ago, I was at the poacher law uh, forum in Florida, and I could tell by the audience that uh, we had Carl Hart, who happened to be on the opposition in the California case as well. He was an expert witness for the defense. And I could tell by the audience of young people that everybody was on his side. Every word he said, they clapped. Every word I said, there was dead silence because I was running counter to their, their cultural set of beliefs. And part of the reason, and I wasn't disappointed, I just said, um, it's because the science has not been translated adequately to the public. There are literally about a hundred manuscripts on the association between psychosis and marijuana, more than that. There are, as I said, a thousand manuscripts on the uh, cognitive impairment of marijuana. There are, I don't know, countless number on marijuana's addictive potential. If I were to go into an audience of college students and just say by a raise of hands, how many of you think it's addictive? I may get 10%. How many of you think it has psychotomimetic properties? I may get 5%. And people would not know because they don't know the science and the more you don't know the more you're going to think it's safe and harmless, because many people use and nothing happens to them. If they use once a month, perhaps even once a week, low potency, there are are at considerably lower risk than those who are using daily, which is an increasing number, those who are currently using 20 to 90% THC, those who are using it for a host of conditions, it's really a problem of of, um, misinformation based on denial combined with lack of, of a smooth transition between what the science says and what the public is aware of.
0: Well, there's no break between our our panel and the next speaker, but I do want to give those in the audience who have a a question. We can take just a couple minutes for for succinct questions. Yes, go right ahead.
3: I don't think it's working. Oh, there we go. Um, So my question is uh, to to the professor. I'm actually very curious in what you had to say. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> medical. Um, you said that the, uh, the, the issue that we're having with the perception of this is that there's a lot of um, bad science that is being fed to the, you know, the, the public to get this to be more accepted. And I was just wondering, where um, would you say are the recognized places to get the good scientific data to combat this misinformation that's being spread?
1: It's an excellent question. It's not so much bad science as trying to critique the current science that is in fact good. For example, If you take, I would take a randomly from this room, 20 volunteers and inject them intravenously with THC. And of those 20 volunteers, a proportion of them are going to develop psychosis. And they have no existing preconditions. They have no genetics. It's just the effect of the drug. But that kind of experiment, which has been reported in at least 15 different times in different countries, is denied. So where does one get the information? I get it straight from the source. Any one of you can go into PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D, which is organized by the National Library of Medicine. All you have to do is put in marijuana and another search term, and you will come up with literally thousands of abstracts. The next stage of veracity that I generally do is look at the quality of the journal. If the journal has a high impact factor, and that's in the public domain, like JAMA, which is outstanding, New England Journal, and so on, Lancet, and, and there are many medical and biomedical journals that have very high level of peer review. You know that the information, right or wrong, has, been, has usually gone through some rigorous tests uh, of, of peer review. Uh, journals that have impact factors of one, you know, JAMA is, oh, I believe over 30, the New England is between 30 and 60, all of these. I can't remember their numbers. But you want to get the information from quality journals. Uh, for example, in the, in the Eastern District of California court case, um, I was disputed on the fact that marijuana is, uh, is not associated with uh, increased traffic deaths and uh, the legal counsel for the defense, the lead counsel came up and showed me a paper and said, here it is, it says there's no association whatsoever, and so I looked at the journal and it was some obscure thing that Nobody, <laughs> but this is the kind of, of misrepresentation that occurs. You pick and choose and cherry pick whatever you think is going to advance your case without looking at the preponderance of evidence.
0: Sir, you have a question?
2: Yes, thank you. I, I could listen to the five of you all day, honestly, but uh, I'm focused in on the case that's developing here in Florida where an uh, individual injured at work As a result of that, he underwent a uh, drug test that was mandatory. He's now on paid suspension from his employment, and it looks like he probably will not get to keep his job because he's violated federal law. Uh, All of these entities that are marketing this material have the advantage of counsel. Uh, One of the things we strive for in our society is that people would understand what is prohibited. The law is supposed to be clear, and I feel like perhaps we are adversely affecting Joe six-pack who walks the street and has a job and is trying to support his or her family. And and where does this mishmash of law leave those people?
3: It's a it's a good point and I would note that it's an issue that has been coming up in states that have had medical marijuana for a longer period of time than Florida and those are the rare cases where um, a, private, a, a private party can raise the preemption as a defense to an action, so you have cases where someone's being sued for employment discrimination saying, you fired me because I engaged in lawful activity, I have a medical marijuana card, and the employer comes back and says, no, that state law is preempted by federal law and I don't have to follow the state law. And uh, most of the courts have been agreeing with the employer. There's an Arizona and I think a California case that go the opposite way. Um, but it's definitely an issue if
2: i might just for a moment um i've represented some folks on this issue which it never really goes well for them as the employee i would only say that um some of the things that have come up is when the private employers make hiring decisions the legality or illegality of the substances they have on their you can't use list if you take marijuana out of the process uh, the nfl for example there's products you can't use for, for whatever wellness issues that those folks might be going through that uh, do much more physical jobs than I do. Um, it, it's, it's an issue in marijuana, obviously, because you're a, a card cardholder, uh, particularly in the state of Florida. I've, I, I don't know if this case has occurred yet, because um, the one case that actually was going to go to trial got thrown out on a technicality, but this case was at the, uh, our Division of Administrative Hearings about two months ago, and it was a corrections officer who had tested positive for THC and the corrections officer and her doctor testified at uh, not at trial because it's at the Division of Administrative Hearings but at hearing uh, that this person was a daily user of CBD for arthritis and that her impression having bought this I believe it at Whole Foods or Lucky's Market or a store like that was that there was no chance of an illegality um, unfortunately we didn't really get a, a holding on that Because the recommended order addressed the problems, the the evidentiary issues that ultimately led to being thrown out. But it's coming. I mean, this is uh, in addition to all the other federal complexities. This is a labor and employment problem for sure. Sure. Well, I. uh, uh,
3: Just one.
0: Yes, quickly, Doctor, because we're getting the uh, we're getting the hook. But go ahead.
1: Um, Number one is the majority of people who have medical cards. Uh, and and the marijuana through the dispensary are using it also for recreational purposes. That's one thing. And the reason nobody wants medical marijuana to go away in states that are legal is that they think it gives them the right to be able to be positive and use in employment. I think that's an important distinction. The second thing is there is no way that biometric testing is ever going to tell us how impaired a person is, because at this point I don't say, I mean typical like blood or urine or or uh, saliva, because at this point some of our studies we've just finished show that there is a very large residual amount of marijuana in the brain even when blood is fairly low.
0: Well, two things. First, I'd like you to all keep your seats because we're not taking a break between our panel uh, and the uh, general counsel from EPA who is going to speak right after us. And second, I'd like you to thank all the panelists who have come and made an effort. (laughs) to